Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is Michael Bernstein, who's a professor in the Computer Science Department at Stanford. Michael does incredibly interesting research on empowering large groups of people using crowdsourcing tools to solve complex problems. In today's episode, he shares examples of successful crowdsourcing and how these tools are evolving, allowing us to tackle daunting challenges in brand new ways. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Excellent. Thank you for the invitation. Now, I know your area of expertise is on crowdsourcing and collective intelligence. Yes. What does that mean? Give us a little bit of a deep dive into this so that we can start understanding it better. Sure. So there are a bunch of terms for for what I do, but let's start with crowdsourcing. So a journalist named Jeff Howe coined the term crowdsourcing. Uh, For him, originally, there was this notion of outsourcing, which is that you took something and then you sort of shipped it say, overseas, and asked people to do it. And he coined crowdsourcing, basically saying, well, outsource it, it's sort of like outsourcing, but instead of giving it to some firm elsewhere, you're going to ask anyone who can or is interested to participate. And early on, there was a lot of surprising successes of this. Um, NASA, as an example, was trying to label craters you know, from, from pictures they were taking using their instruments, and they opened it up and Lo and behold, people around the internet started actually labeling, you know, all of these features of, of these photographs. Uh, folks have labeled, you know, moving to other ast- astrological phenomena, uh, galaxies, right? This was known as the Galaxy Zoo or now Zooniverse Project, where they've you know, published papers in really reputed journals, um, even again within science, folding proteins. We have people who have uh, gone and solved big mysteries and puzzles together. In some sense, even things like Wikipedia uh, were, were crowdsourced. Uh, the simplest way of thinking about crowdsourcing is to say, what I'm going to do is make an open call. So, Can anybody contribute? I mean, do you have to have any domain expertise? Or is this that uh, you're calling on the people who just anyone, anyone who's walking down the street? Yeah, that's a, it really depends on what you're looking for. Um, many go for anyone. So look at Wikipedia. It doesn't really say, you, we only want people who have college degrees. And in fact, many of the people who are core contributors come from outside those traditional areas. Um, now, you know, Jochai Benkler at Harvard has this entire notion of peer production where he talks about how these things sort of work themselves out because you can see someone's contributions. You don't have to show me your, uh, you know, your degree for me to let you in. You just show me what you can do. And if you do it well, then yeah, stick around. So, you know, really the the purpose in many ways of crowdsourcing or a purpose of it is diversity. So one of the things that's super interesting here is that um, we have computers that know how to do certain things. Yes. But you're calling upon people and essentially creating this collective brain. Yes. I want to play a short clip from Stephen Cohn from Palantir talking about this process, and I'd love to get your thoughts. For Palantir... What, what the fundamental aspiration of the platform um, is, it's basically to enable humans to perform the analytical reasoning that, for whatever reason, machines can't seem to replicate. There's a certain form, I mean, we could say uh, 
the, the kind of simplistic version of this is to enable the ideal human-computer symbiosis. But I think that doesn't quite do justice to some of the more subtle aspects of this, the, the idea here, which is, firstly, um, accepting as computer scientists and engineers and just people who are in the technology business that there's actually a lot computers can't do. Uh, it could be for practical, empirical reasons, could be for theoretical reasons. I find the theoretical possibilities quite interesting themselves. But accepting that there's these, these realms of uh, reasoning that computers are particularly bad at without human help, like, for instance, figuring out what the right framing is for a problem. You can't even really describe a problem to a computer without a framing on it that pre-exists. So you certainly can't hope for the computer just to kind of tell you, hey, here's the right framing. So what do you think? Do you agree with him? Yeah, you know, in many ways, what he's saying is one of the core tenets of human-computer interaction, which is that we need to understand what people are good at and what computers are good at. And obviously, these are uh, always shifting, but you know, we need to find the right combination. Uh, I would add to this Jeff Bezos, who you know is the CEO of Amazon, uh, launched a crowdsourcing platform called Mechanical Turk. And when he launched it, he gave it this sort of curious designation of, of being artificial, artificial intelligence. So the idea was that you would crowdsource and ask people the kinds of things that you would normally want to, to ask an AI, but couldn't because the AI couldn't do yet. And I think there are maybe down the road some problematic assumptions behind that in terms of people becoming cogs in a machine. But if you take that perspective for a moment, or at least the useful parts of it, you can say, well, people are always going to be at some level one step ahead of what computing can do, at least for now. You know, there are certain domains in which computing does better, but ultimately, uh, we are still far away from being able to replicate much of you know, human perceptual and cognitive functions. And often what people are using crowdsourcing to do is to just sort of go one step ahead of AI. And then when AI advances, great, we can finally do slightly more interesting things with people. And you know, we sort of walk in tandem, continually using people to push out the, the, the edges of what computing and, and AI can do. Super interesting. So what type of experiments do you actually do in this field? We are questioning where we think you know, the limits of crowds are. Today, basically, everyone is using crowdsourcing to do things that anyone can do. So I have a bunch of images. I need them labeled to train up my, my machine learning system. Or I have, uh, I'm a scientist and I have a bunch of data and I need people to help parse through it. Great. But, you know, this is stuff that anyone with sort of basic cognitive equipment can handle. And at the higher level, you think about you know, truly creating a collective intelligence. You and I have very different skills and they're complementary. And by working together, we can accomplish a lot more than, you know, if I use your eyeballs to do eyeball things and you use my nose to do nose things. So what we're really fascinated by is this opportunity to think about drawing together on-demand groups of experts through computation to do things far more rapidly, flexibly, and you know, really uh, uh, just complex outcomes that you could never do with crowdsourcing before. I'm thinking about things like uh, designing a new user experience and implementing it and user testing it in a day. Or you know, creating an animate a short animated video in a couple days, um, pulling together just the people you need at just the right time and coordinating them all online. Now, what you what you do here is you you, you basically say, wait, hold on, you know, 
let's take advantage of the expertise that you have. Let's tap into some of these online labor markets that have started to arise. You can think of platforms like uh, Upwork or Freelancer or Topcoder, where you can, you know, we found everything from programmers to poets uh, and essentially be able to connect through APIs to draw them together. You, you know what you need, you know what the, what the steps are, and all of a sudden you have a team that's never met before and may never meet again, but, to get, but today is collaborating really intensively towards some very complex tasks. So it seems to me as if it's almost as if the computers are outsourcing to the people. Sure. I, w- I, would, I would say that it was, it's hopefully a much more mutual relationship. The, uh, I, I sometimes think of it this way. For many years, the relationship that exists between people and computers is that I'm a person, I turn to the computer to get work done, right? The relationship is that work comes from me or from my boss. I turn to the computer, I fire up Excel, and it helps me with the doing of that work. And now all of a sudden, the computer we're thinking is actually much more than that. It's sort of this layer in between that mediates the doing of the work. It helps connect me to other people that are trying to do similar things and helps coordinate us in doing it. So some of the things that you would traditionally think of as as a manager doing, maybe computation can help with. Like, who should be here right now? Are we coordinating effectively? Should there be more of us, fewer of us? What expertise do we need? These are all things that maybe if you if we let computation help us measure and experiment and and take an active role in, maybe we can be more effective at what we're trying to do. Like think of it more as a partnership than uh, than the matrix. So I'm going to play another clip. This is one from Tim O'Reilly, and I think it's really interesting. He talks about um, how autonomous vehicles are mm-hmm. tapping into collective intelligence. You know, a really great example of this that I can't, you know, pass by is the, the uh, Google Autonomous, you know, car. What I find so fascinating about this project is that, uh, you know, in 2005 it was, we had the DARPA Grand Challenge, and the winner went seven miles in seven hours. You know, six years later, Google says, oh, we have a car that's driven hundreds of thousands of miles in ordinary traffic. What happened? What was different? And there was a wonderful line from uh, Peter Norvig. He said, we don't have better algorithms. We just have more data. And what was that data? It turns out it was the Google Street View vehicle. So the difference is the recorded memory of humans who drove those roads. You equip humans with sensors, very, very detailed sensors that measured everything, that photographed everything, collected all that data, stored it in the global brain, and then you know, returned it, uh, you know, for use by that car. That's a brilliant, you know, rethinking of man-machine symbiosis, human-machine symbiosis. So, Michael, is this what we're talking about, about the relationship, a really changing relationship between man and machines and seeing what things machines do well, what we do well, and finding some, some marriage where we can do much more together? Yeah, I think that, you know, Licklider, this guy who came up with the term of man-machine symbiosis, he was one of the founders of my field. So definitely a, uh, a central you know, piece of, of, of what we use when we're thinking about the design of technology. The interesting case of the, of the self-driving car was, yeah, you know, it was, it was about the people generating the data. And, you know, this modern deep learning revolution is the same. It's about having a ton of data. And often that's from, from people, the uh, 
there's a, a great, you know, very influential argument that came out of uh, some some researchers that you know you can do a lot more with a lot better data than you can these days with better algorithms. And you know you can debate the uh, the details, but at a high level, that's what's really been so influential. And at, so if you really want to be successful, you want to look at people like Luis von Ahn who have thought about ways to convince people to generate the data that computing needs to be effective at what it does. You look at things like CAPTCHA, those little riddles that you solve on your way into uh, into websites, or you look at his, his project Duolingo, which teaches uh, you new languages, and along the way, it's learning how to translate languages. You know, these are things that are, you know, very, very, gr- you know, just wonderfully designed sort of impedance matches between what people want to do and what computing needs. So it sounds like it's all these little micro tasks that people do or things that they do naturally, like just driving down the street, that we can capture and tap into that intelligence, even if people don't even know they're contributing. Right. So, you know, imagine that the next time you go about your day, you can walk around confidently knowing that you're helping you know, future you have a better a better life because you're you're helping train the global collective intelligence that's a pretty uplifting point of view uh, you know you could also question whether there are privacy invasions there but you know ultimately I think what we find is that people um, people make it worth it you know if it's if, if the benefit is worth the cost then then I'll then I'll do that so I think this this focus on microtasks is fascinating. It's essentially saying let's take a huge, big huge problem and let's chop it up into a bunch of you know almost entirely the same little tiny micro tasks and everyone's going to take one or two of these right. And there are only so many things you can solve that way. So you know you're not going to uh, develop the the eighth wonder of the world in little tiny micro tasks where people have never coordinated or talked to each other. But you could start to think, okay, but if we build on that foundation, this notion that we could collaborate in a very distributed way, maybe we could ask, what would that eighth wonder be? And could we work, you know, around globally to, to achieve it? You know, could you do what you're good at and I do it, what I'm good at. And we, and the computer helps us figure out who, who does what and when, you know, push up from this notion of like a little tiny micro task to a big, you know, macro or, you know, huge, uh, huge task. And how, what, how does that look? You know, does that take us maybe past self-driving cars into something even much more ambitious? Well, let's dive into something you mentioned just a minute ago in passing. Yeah ethical issues. Sure. Because we're living in a world where essentially it feels as though privacy has essentially evaporated. And uh, we're, you know, how does privacy and ethics fit into all of this? Mm. So privacy and ethics essentially at some level needs to ask the question of risks and benefits, right? So the, the fact that Google is monitoring my search usage. It's true, but it's also useful in making a better Google. And I intentionally make that trade-off rather than using another search engine like uh, DuckDuckGo, which doesn't do so. And so it's, you know, I don't think one can draw a bright line between, you know, this is privacy preserving and this is not. But we can ask, you know, if, if we're always listening to everything that everyone is doing, are, is that benefit really worth it? Um, and I would I would add that you know increasingly these machine learning systems that are going everywhere are being powered by a large class of individuals who are doing freelance work as contractors 
getting paid to label these data items, doing these little tiny micro tasks without any of the thing we would traditionally associate with, you know, labor protections or support. And I think we need to ask ourselves, is that the world we want to be building? Um, and in many ways, I would say the answer is no. So I want to I ask you a personal question. Yes. Knowing that everything you do is being monitored, does it change your behavior? I mean, would you, do you modify the type of searches you do? Do you have a little bit of an editor in your mind saying, you know what, do I really want Google to see me doing this? Mm -hmm. Or do you feel as though, you know what, it doesn't matter, everything I do is fair game? That's a great question, too. I probably edit my behavior less than I should. Um, I think that it's, what's fascinating also is more about the, the mismatches in our expectations. So a lot of people will open up a private browsing window and be like, now I'm completely secure, when in reality you're not very much more secure than you were before. It's just sort of like a little security blanket that makes you feel that way. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, I'm willing to throw myself into the wind on this. I feel that perhaps I'm, you know, especially in my generation and above, maybe I'm not the norm. But you, enough... I've been on the other side of these data systems, right? I've spent time uh, as a as a postdoctoral scholar at Facebook, you know, and they have a ton of data. But is anyone ever a able to look at it? Are they allowed to? And b do do they? There's too much, you know. You can you can extract aggregate patterns, and there's some amazing work that comes out of researchers looking at the kinds of the kinds of things that one could extract if one wanted to. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's there's power and there's responsibility. And I believe that most people try to act responsibly around this data. I hope that that's true. So, uh, <laughs> Prove me wrong. I'm sure yeah, tomorrow <laughs> I'll check so, the headlines. So let me ask you, are there examples of other animals that use this type of collective intelligence? Sure. Well, so uh, a great example actually here at Stanford is Deborah Gordon. Uh, she's in the biology department and has, for her entire career, studied ants. And wow, does she have some fascinating results. You know, she's trying to, to study how, you know, ants have no central smarts. You know, everything's collectively intelligent. They're sort of uh, coordinating through chemical signals and some physical signals and still able to sort of adapt and, and behave in smart ways. Like, for example, she's done these studies looking at how many ants you send out to scavenge for water and food. And there's this, there's this risk, there's this trade-off, right? If I send out too many, then my entire you know, colony is going to die because none of them found anything. But if I don't sound out enough, I'm not going to find any of these, uh, uh, the nutrients I need to survive. So it turns out that what they do is she found that they, they actually modulate how many ants they send out to go scavenging based on how quickly the ants are coming back. And what's crazy about this is that this is actually these, these, basically the same algorithm that underlies the internet known as TCPIP, that says like how quickly we send out packets. This is research that, uh, that Deborah did here at Stanford with a faculty member in, in electrical engineering. Uh, they call it the internet, essentially looking at all of these uh, similarities between how biological systems like ants, or there are also, there's also Ian Cozen, who used to be at, at Princeton, uh, uh, you know, studies birds and fish and the ways in which these 
distributed you know, intelligences seem to emerge. How do we all know to turn at the same time, right? And can we learn something about how people can or should behave by looking at, at animal species? So have these, has uh, this type of collective intelligence research evolved in parallel with our learnings about other species like ants? Or are we taking what we've learned from ants and that's end up uh, essentially informing the way we should design these systems? That's a good, yeah. You know, I think a lot of it has been spiritual rather than sort of direct models being moved from one place to another. And there are, we're starting to see, you know, places and venues like this collective intelligence conference where I, I, I've never seen, you know, a keynote by a biologist followed by a keynote by an economist followed by a keynote by a computer scientist followed by a keynote by an organizational scholar. It's, you know, the connections are everywhere. And I think in, in many ways, these literatures have sort of developed in parallel, you know, our thinking about how markets work really can and should inform, you know, our, our understandings of how people coordinate or how uh, ants and fish coordinate. Uh, but in reality, you know, we have to we have to put these these things into conversation with each other. It really speaks to the benefit of being a polyglot, if you can. Well, it's a wonderful argument for being um, educated in all different disciplines because, you know, being a biologist ends up informing what you end up doing in computer science. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, another example, maybe outside of collective intelligence, where these sort of... uh, more spiritual changes have, have happened. I, uh, and here I'm thinking of my colleague, Dan Yenis in, in psychology, you know, neural networks, which are sort of the things that have made the modern deep learning revolution happen. They're not exactly how the brain works, but they are sort of inspired by models of how neurons in our brains work. And, you know, if you tried to make it too high fidelity to the brain, we probably wouldn't work because we don't really understand the brain well enough yet. But if you take the simplified model, wow, do you get some really impressive results out of it. So I imagine that, you know, we are seeing that that same kind of cross uh, inspiration where you have, you know, biologists who have uh, or, or chemists who have started crowdsourcing answers to like how to pr- fold a protein. Right and have and have solved uh, in a week, I think, questions that have taken a decade for um, for, you know, people in, in the core science and this is just incredible that like by reaching out to another another area you can you can draw these new kinds of insights uh it really takes some some interest in being knowing enough to be dangerous across these fields and that's where i think half the fun lies so let's project ourselves into the future let's say even 10 years which is you know a reasonable amount of time to try to project what's going to happen what would you imagine are going to be the interesting problems that will be solved using these type of techniques I would love to see us move from a world in which right now, you know, a scientist in an ivory tower says, hey, I have a question that the world really needs to help me answer. And then people around the world rally around that and transition to a world in which we all are asking and answering the questions. How do we make our our global brain truly sort of in that sense, more democratic? You know, can we do that in 10 years? I don't know. But I think can we come up with, you know, really compelling examples of how of how what this future might look like, where we are all, you know, collaborating effectively uh, or as effectively as possible on you know projects that might have been too big or too hard for us to tackle, and you know, in our individual little uh, homes, I, I think there's a lot that could be done there. You know, really open up access, open open the gates to the ivory tower. That sounds so exciting. So for someone who might be interested in this field or figure out how to tap into the benefits of this field, what advice would you give someone? I think if you want to crowdsource something, you need to think about how much someone needs to know in order to help, 
relative to the amount of effort it takes to actually help. If it takes me a week to explain to you how you're going to be able to contribute, and then you make your contribution in 10 seconds and then you leave, that's not a great use of your time. But if I can explain it to you pretty quickly, what you're, what you're trying to do, and then you can just jam on it, then you have this much more effective uh, relationship. So if you're thinking about how to get into crowdsourcing, I would think about, you know, do I benefit from things like diversity, right? From a diversity of opinions. Can I deal with people who actually have different opinions on something? What if you think it's this way and I think it's that way? And, and I would think about, you know, how do we coordinate, right? Is it actually possible for us to all sort of align ourselves so that we can, can make this happen? So the tools that people use don't have to be very complicated these days. You, know, you can set up a Google form. You can put together a, a shared document. You can, uh, you can just get into a chat room and, a lot is powerful. When we're doing our research at Stanford, that's often what we start with. It's whatever's around us, something that we don't even need to write code for. And it's only once we start to see that this sort of social environment is working and that the, that the motivations are aligned that we start to write code. So I, I would add one, one more thought, which is about motivations and, and at some level incentives, right? I think people often start from this perspective of, Hey, let's put it out on the internet. Let's let anyone do it. And of course they'll come. You know, people have a lot of things to do in their lives. And so it requires a lot of careful thought about, well, why is someone interested in this? You know, is this something where I'm getting paid? Some people do that. You know, I'll just pay workers on these platforms to do it. Or is it because it's something that I really care about? You know, maybe I care about this issue of the environment. So I'll go and join, you know, MIT's Climate Collab. Um... Or, is, you know, or am I interested in becoming famous? You know, some of these uh, online Kaggle competitions are all about trying to get noticed in the crowd by being the best that, at what you do. And I think having a very clear model of why is it that someone would come and participate is a really important uh, piece of clarity to, to achieve. Otherwise, you're going to put a lot of effort into creating something and then, you know, no one will come. So this is interesting because there seem to be several different flavors, right? They're the things you do automatically. For example, when I'm logging into a site and I have to put the little caption numbers in, you know, no one really asks my, my opinion about that. I just have to do it. Yes, or you... when I'm driving around and my phone is giving information about the traffic, clearly that's a situation where nobody's asking my, you know, for my permission. But then there are other projects where you're actually inviting people to participate. Right. I mean, even sometimes in the in the case of it being passive, I have a choice. I can I can turn off ways, right? I can I can opt out of the system. So I have to believe in the thing that's being created. And ultimately, I think we also have to, in a crowdsourcing world, realize that you know ninety or ninety nine percent of the people who are who are going to take advantage of this data set aren't actually going to contribute much back. You know, Wikipedia, think about the last time you edited Wikipedia versus the last time that you read Wikipedia. And you probably read it more often than, you, than you've edited it. But Wikipedia works because that's okay. You only need a few people who really, really care about the history of deviled eggs to make that a, <laughs> uh, you know, a million page views. Um, and when, and when, that, when that 
proportion isn't right or when you're assuming that everyone is going to contribute and 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 take advantage that's when things start to get a little problematic people want to help but they don't always have the time well, this has been incredibly interesting. I know that I'm going to look at the world through a very different type of lens as I see the things that I'm doing that are contributing to the collective intelligence. And uh, you've made me more intelligent today. So thank you, <laughs> and you very, well. very much. Thank you. Really great. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Stanford Innovation Lab is produced and edited by Eli Shell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Khan, with software development by Davor Senkovic. Our designer is Daniel Stusi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Yort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on both this podcast and our ETL series. So please follow us on Twitter and eCorner. And if you're a fan of the series, please leave a review on iTunes. Finally, remember, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible.